0: Welcome to Mercer's Energizing the Employee Experience podcast with me, your host, Tyree Houghton. Each week, I'll be joined by guests who will share their experiences and insights to help you create a people-first workplace to attract and retain the best talent. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing workforce transformation, and I'm delighted to be joined by my brilliant colleagues, Pavan Vilku and Maura Jarvis. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Pavan, could you give a quick introduction to yourself?
1: Yes. Hi, everyone. Um, My name is Pavan. I work in our workforce transformation team in London. Um, My background is in HR, and I am an HR transformation self-confessed nerd. (laughs) Thank you. And Maura?
2: Yeah, hi, lovely to be with you today, Maura Jarvis, I lead the transformation practice in the UK, and like Pavan, also uh, background in HR, um, all things HR is what I've spent my career doing, and absolutely love it, so I suppose Pavan, I'm also an HR nerd.
0: Welcome. (laughs) In brilliant company. As a result of the pandemic, we've seen an acceleration in business change. Suddenly what was a be good to do is now a must for businesses. This business change ultimately impacts HR strategy. So how have HR had to adapt
2: here? Right, so I think what's really interesting, uh, Terry, is that businesses have had to reconfigure themselves, you know, as a result of the pandemic. So I think pre-pandemic, lots of businesses were thinking about the concepts of flexible work for example Um, but it was really something that was almost you know ethereal in terms of what what was going on and when the pandemic hit organizations were forced into actually having to reconfigure what they what they do as a business how they do it where they do it and they had to adapt to it really from a survival perspective um, and really move into a new business model because there was no ability to just carry on as normal. So, I mean, if we just think about some of the obvious examples in our own environment around, like the impact on retail, for example, you know, suddenly you couldn't go down to the store, you had to do everything online, and just think about, you know, what a fundamental shift that was for some organizations in terms of how they did their work, where they did their work, when they did their work, etc. And so, I think part of the impact on the, the business strategy changing has been that HR then had to become a lot more agile. They had to look for ways of innovation. They had to do things at different speeds. Um, the employment models started to change. If we looked at the ask on leaders as an example, um, they went from having managed people within their line of sight to having people working remotely, um, not having their team together. Um, and so I think all of that change actually landed at HR's door, um, which is quite unusual because previously business change often landed sort of in the business operational part um, of the organization. And I think with the pandemic, what happened is that everybody was looking to HR for the first time, saying, how do we solve this? How do we work remotely? You know, how are we going to still carry on? And I think that's where, you know, HR really had to step up to the plate and had to really be the leader in the business in terms of giving some of that advice. I mean, Pavan, I think you'll be able to comment really well in terms of some of the changes we've seen in, in, in HR as a result of this.
1: Yeah, I think to bring some of them, what you just said to life, I mean, the NHS is a great example of that. So how many unskilled, untrained workers did they use to the to help the vaccination programme? How many new um, models of employment did they have to use as a result of that? Uh, so. HR have had to kill their um, their traditional cyclical activities to really respond to changes in the workplace. Um, I mean, just all of my clients at the moment, how many off-cycle pay changes have they had to um, get through their net over the last 12 months? So I do think this has been a really positive change for HR. They have had a seat at the table for the last um, two years. And now they are really in a position to say, we can do things, we can make change happen, and we can make change happen quickly. Uh, So there is no excuse for uh, a five-year Agile Transformation programme.
0: No, that's great. And I think I've been talking to my clients about a shift, and I think it's accelerated by the pandemic, of... Actually, it's not about businesses dictating um, HR strategy. HR are having to dictate what the business strategy is because the people are the most important part. And where we see so many companies um, going on that journey and shifting perhaps towards the tech sector, they're at the heart of, of that change and driving that change.
1: Yeah, I mean, these these organizations have not just changed their business models, but the types of people that they need to employ has almost in a complete 360. So that's where we're seeing lots of conversations about talent and the war for talent is is real and it's happening all across the world, not just in Silicon Valley. So I think there's a lot of uh, conversations that people are having with us around strategic workforce planning and how do I find these amazing um, pots of talent and where are they?
2: I think the other thing that's been um, a real shift and 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 a very welcome and long overdue shift has also been around, and I think you touched on it around, you know, the employee centricity. So, in other words, I think in the past we've had organisations investing millions in technology to you know innovate their businesses and take them to the next level, but technology is is only one part of that equation. And I think really in in the last few years we've seen the importance of people and people coming into the center of of that little universe as such. So I think before, we always heard businesses saying people are our most important asset. But actually, now we're really seeing that in practice. And I think to your point, Pavan, around the whole issue around talent is that, um, you know, now talent is not something to be taken for granted or not something that one can go and find in the market if you're just paying the right amount of money. We've really seen a massive shift in the whole talent dialogue, what talent is looking for um, and how, you know, organizations can position themselves um, as a real talent magnet, um, in, you know, in the working environment. No, I, th- I think that's so true. I, I think...
0: I could probably every single one of my clients, I could go in and say that, you know, in in some of their literature, whether it's their annual statements, their website, they have a statement saying that people are the most important asset. And that's always been there and they haven't done anything about it or proven it. But suddenly that is is really changing because as you say, post-pandemic, there's been a real power shift and that suddenly the employees are having the power to dictate where they want to work, how they want to work. Businesses are having to adjust and actually live up to what they've been saying for quite a while, which I think is is amazing for the employee and changing kind of everything. Have you touched on one thing that was about the war for talent? And I guess this is something that I, I don't know of any of my clients who aren't struggling with retention and recruitment at the moment, and it's becoming a wider and wider issue, and as more businesses shift towards that tech focus, that we know that is happening, it's it's only going to become more of a problem. So, what would your top tips for businesses that are finding themselves in this position be? How can they address it? How where are they best starting to
1: tackle this problem? I think the first thing is um, create processes, talent processes that are employee centric. So, we have historically as HR professionals try to make our jobs easier and easier, automate um, the the steps in a process that um, are meaningful to us, but we rarely look at the employee lens. Um, And so looking at things on on an employee basis is is gonna be really important. And then I'd like to bring Maura in here to talk more about some of the really interesting assessments that we can do to look at, you know, which EVPs are actually being um, used in the market and, and how do you compare?
2: Yeah, thanks, Kevin. I mean, I think that's one thing if we look at the EVP is traditionally we've had a one-size-fits-all EVP. And the I think really what we're seeing now is a need for a personalization of that EVP so that it's, you know, you've got multiple personas in the business. And, and I think linking into that is also um, a trend around not making assumptions as to what those personas are looking for in their EVP, but actually using employee listening to talk to your employees and find out what really matters to them and what are their preferences and then designing customized EVPs um, around that component. I think the other thing to raise around this whole topic about war for talent is around really the business understanding what are the skills that they need to have in the future. You know, we've mentioned earlier on that, you know, businesses have had to reimagine themselves. They've had to Diversify into different industries, different service offerings. And I think the whole skills landscape has changed dramatically. So, what we're working with a with a lot of clients is having a look at their strategic workforce planning and really understanding what are the skills that they need, not just now at the moment, but in the future. And do they have those skills? What are those gaps that they've got in the organization? And do they have the people that are currently employed? Do they have the ability to reskill and upskill those people to be able to meet that talent requirement and skills requirement? So, you know, I think sometimes there are people who can be retrained. Obviously, employment and employability is really important. And I think, you know, you've got to have a strategy around that. You've got to plan for that. You've got to be thinking about the business. You know, what are we going to look like in two or three years' time? What are the skills that we're going to need? How many of those people are we going to need? And then very importantly, where are we going to go and find them? So I think the other interesting thing that we've seen around talent analytics that has come into play in the last little while with a few clients has also been about, you know, where are those skills located? So if I'm looking for software engineers, by example, and I have a business that is located in Manchester or Birmingham, are there actually people with those skills in that location? So we're doing a lot of work with clients around location and talent analysis to try and find out, you know, is certain locations where you really have a big group of people with those skills. And that, you know, obviously talks into the whole, the whole analytics thing. Um, And then the last thing I would just mention on the talent wall for talent thing is also just around, I think businesses need to be, and HR need to be, a lot more open-minded around where and the forms of talent that they find. So we are seeing that um, in our latest global talent trends that you know, um, 60% of employers are anticipating changing their employment models to incorporate more flexible type of con- employment contracts. So looking at gig workers, looking at permanent part-timers, looking at people who want to work a a compressed work week, for example. We're seeing a lot out in the press around, you know, the four-day work week, etc. Now, if you want to compete for talent, those are some of the things that you need to be thinking about as HR to say, you know, how do we stack up? Are we offering something that is unique and really attractive to the people who are out there and who are very much in demand from a skills perspective? Thank you. I think
0: one thing that that stood out for me is when you were talking about the skills and I think typically businesses think to look elsewhere and actually the power of retraining comes back to that EVP and supports the employees in their journey by offering the career progression and that sense of purpose and making them feel involved with the company. And I think it's such a powerful way to gain the skills that you need, but also build that culture and um, buy in from your employees. Um, the other thing, more you touched around data. How critical is it that HR and businesses are using data to try and drive and support these changes?
2: So uh, absolutely critical. And I think that HR historically have, have often put forward suggestions of initiatives based on, let's say, a gut feel um, or a perception that this is what's required. And what we're seeing is that if you want to you know, have a seat at the table. Very important that you are talking from a data perspective um, and that you are able to meet the business demands, um, but, you know, obviously with with data to back up the decisions that you are making. So as, you know, by way of example, you know, we're working with a client at the moment and I touched on the location component. They are going to design where they are going to look at all of their future business operating units on where the talent supply is, um, and and you know that kind of narrative, if HR are able to do that at the table, it's similar to the skills um, discussion that we were having just now. It really just lends credibility to all of the initiatives that HR is embarking upon, um, and also you've got a way of tracking that if the market moves, you know the data is going to give you that indication um, from a predictive perspective as well. So often when we look at analytics we look at historical data, but I think the power in in the space that we work in is the ability to also look at past trends and then to use that data to be predictive going forward so that you actually can plan for the future, uh, but on a very, very solid base.
1: Yeah, and I know HR gets a, a bad rap for data really, and you know, it's historically been underfunded. Some of the technology has only really just got up to scratch where we can be doing some things that are around predictive analytics and looking at the organization as a whole so I think HR has been on its own journey and now is in a position to be using powerful data and tell stories with that data they can really influence businesses to do things differently so I think um, going back to my earlier point now is the time and we've got the data and technology to support HR to do something very differently so it's important that they use the tools that they've spent years implementing.
0: I think that's so true Pam and I think Where there's budget restraints in HR, naturally, whether it's right or wrong, the step that's quite often missed is that data step. But more, as you said, when you're elevating these conversations to align to a business strategy, when you're speaking to your C-suite, the data is what they need to see and what they need to hear. So it is such a critical piece not to be missed out by HR in order to meet the needs of the conversation, but also then help shape and drive it. Because I I do know from experience, it is quite often something that is skipped. And as you say, it's that unconscious bias of, oh, I think we know what what it's looking like, uh, rather than taking that deeper dive into it and getting the true data.
2: I was just going to say, I think also the other thing is that there's different types of data that we can look at here. And that's the qualitative and the quantitative. So yes, quantitative, really important. But I think a lot of the qualitative data is also where you're really going to win the hearts and minds of the people. So I mentioned at the beginning around the importance of employee listening and the whole customization of the EVP offering. And I think that's where your employee listening can be very, very powerful. Um, and, And you might not instinctively think of that as data, but it actually is. And you're able to track that year on year. So I think just the importance of having the richness of both the qualitative and the quantitative And then using that to put together your business case, um, I think will just land so much better at the C-suite level, as you were saying, because then you're really talking business language.
0: So uh, lastly from me, um, if you were in HR shoes right now, where would you be focusing your energy and your budget on?
1: I think it's going back to that technology point. So how are we using... Um, data that is available externally and internally to look at where I'm best placed to um, forge my business, really, and how my best place to grow, whether that's site or whether that's a specific skills. Um, I would be looking into the market to see which which technology is out there and how can that help me.
2: Yeah, and I think adding on to that, I think um, really investing in understanding where the business is going from a skills perspective. So I think a whole strategic workforce planning. Um, is really important, and designing, you know, your skills journey. You mentioned just the importance of reskilling and upskilling, and you know, um, really working with your with your current employees. I think is very very important. The the other thing I would think is, you know, that EVP uh, component that we mentioned as well in terms of having the ability to customize that and really have a cutting edge employee value proposition so that people don't only want to join your organization but they also don't want to leave you because they're just having the most amazing experience working for you. Um, And that ties into my career development, you know, my succession, my skills, the culture, I think you've touched on, on quite a few of those. Um, And then, Pavan, just one that I know that's close to your heart is also, I would just say, around preparing HR for the future. There are a lot of new skills that are required by the HR teams, and I think the willingness to invest in your HR team, just the same as you invest in everybody else in the organization, I think is something that HR possibly need to be fighting for, asking for, and if they are... Any CEOs or C-suite people listening to the call is that you know invest invest in your HR people. They really are the lifeblood of the organization.
1: Yeah, and I mean, if I was allowed to have another one, um, there there is there is a whole piece of research that we've done recently around the relatable organization. And it's really HR that need to be infusing the business embedding, being relatable, being more human, being more caring into the business. Now you can have that hard edge, but we cannot lose sight of the fact that employees are important. And how do you make an organization that is culturally relatable to many times in a global workforce?
0: The good thing is uh, the conversations with my clients, I would probably say the majority of them, it's about redefining that EVP and that's where the conversations are going with them. So that's, that's brilliant to see that it's aligned to your thinking. The key sort of takeaways for me is that it's something that we need to act now before that war for talent becomes even greater. And that divide between you and others in your industry, or even out of your industry becomes too big and use the power of data in whatever form that may be. And then lastly, to really try and change that conversation to elevate yourselves as HR and leverage the amazing work that all the HR teams did during the pandemic, where they were thrown into managing furloughs for everyone, plus their day jobs, plus reskilling, plus all of this stuff, and they've proven themselves. So change that conversation. At the C suite to elevate and get that funding, enabled to make those changes and, and see the results of all the work they've done. Is there anything, anything else, or do you think that sort of sums up the key parts? I
2: think you've done a brilliant job of summarizing it. Um, the only thing I think just that we have missed a little, I think, is just and you touched on, Pavan, is around well-being. Um, you know, in our in, in our latest research, we've seen that people you know, we know are exhausted and I just think HR does play a massive role there in mitigating the risk and making sure that, you know, well-being of employees, talking to your points around caring, Pavan, is really critical um, to make sure that we're just looking after our people and really truly caring for them Um, because I think if you do that, that's going to allow employees to really thrive um, and to want to have, you know, a lifelong contract with the organisation. Just a few things for HR to do then. <laughs> <laughs> Just, to, I mean,
1: and, and that kind of comes back to my point. We need agility in HR. They're not going to be able to do this, um, doing the same things based on the same jobs that they they used to do. But it's a, a really, really exciting time. It's a refreshed, renewed, re-energized HR function. Um, but but we do need to do this in a in a way that doesn't completely kill the people that have been working their socks off during the pandemic.
0: Well, thank you both so much for joining me. I hope you've enjoyed our conversation and I hope everyone listening has got some key takeaways and had a few thoughts about how they should be tackling the workforce transformation within their businesses. Please subscribe to keep up to date with our latest episodes. And if you have any questions, please do not hesitate to contact us at mercer.uk at mercer.com.